Welcome, ladies, to the Real Estate Investor Show, providing inspiration, strategies, and insight to empower women investors to live balanced and financially free lives. Now, here are your co-hosts, Liz and Andressa. Paul Pant quit her 9-to-5 job in 2008 and spent two years backpacking across the world. When she returned to the U.S., she and her partner scraped together enough money to buy a triplex as their first home. From there, they grew their portfolio and became financially independent as a result. Paul's weekly podcast, Afford Anything, has been downloaded more than 3 million times. On today's episode, we discuss what financial independence really means, how to move beyond fear, mistakes to avoid when analyzing deals, and how to afford anything. Welcome back, ladies. This is Liz. And this is Andressa. We're excited to have you back on the Real Estate Investor Show. Another week where we dive into either a topic that Andressa and I are, are passionate about in terms of <laughs> investing with, on, the, on the realm of, of, for women, or we interview a really phenomenal woman out there doing the work of investing and, and making their um, goals a reality. So uh, Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're really uh, looking forward to hearing your story and, and everything. Uh, but, you know, before we jump into Paula's story and, and uh, you know, all the great things we're going to get into, um, Andressa, what's, uh, what's happening for you? How, how are things going in, in Andressa's land? And what's, what's new and exciting on your end? Well, very well. I know that we're a couple of months away from Christmas, but I already know what do I want for, for Christmas. I what do you a, want? I want a drill. <laughs> Swear. So um, we are setting up our latest Airbnb property. And my friend, Jan, she has this like toolbox with so many great tools for everything that you can possibly imagine. But she has a very good drill. Mm. And I did not know the sensation of like really hands on with a good drill. What is the difference? And I really got a high out of it. So now I do know what do I want for Christmas? That's it. A drill and like toolboxes, all that kind of stuff. Really enjoy that. <laughs> it's funny you're saying that because, you know, I, it's funny being in real estate. I'm sure Paula could connect with this too, but it's funny being in real estate. People always ask if you're handy and I'm always like, no, but no. I've recently I've really, I agree with you. I was using um, the drill we have at downstairs and I, I just was, I asked my husband to do something because he normally likes to do these types of things outside and he just been busy. So I'm like, screw it. I'm going to do it my damn self. So I got the <laughs> drill. I went outside. Right. I'm like, this is really powerful. I, I agree with you. I think exactly. I need to ask for a, a new drill for Christmas as well. Exactly. Not that I want to start doing my own construction myself, no, no, but no. listen, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I really yeah. did. Very <laughs> cool. Great. All right. I'll write that down. If you're good, you know, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> well, awesome. So uh, Paula, thank you again so much for, uh, you know, being on our show and uh, all the amazing things you're up to. So I'm excited to, to jump into your story here. Um, you know, as we, as we like to kind of just, you know, start things off, share with our, the ladies listening, uh, you know, a little bit about your background, but most importantly, because I think it's really unique, especially with your knowing a bit about your story, what like pulled you into real estate investing? Because there's a lot of things people can do to create passive income and to create wealth for themselves. So real estate's one of them. And I'm, you know, just to, to, so as we jump in, what really pulled you into this, uh, into this business? Well, initially, uh, we were just looking for 
uh, a way to get our own housing costs down to zero. We were trying to eliminate our own personal rent or mortgage payment. So for me, um, for me and my husband, that was how this began. We were living, uh, when it began, we were renting one bedroom in a three bedroom apartment. So we were sharing that with roommates. There were a total of five of us living in this three bedroom apartment. And um, he and I were paying $400 a month combined between the two of us. So our rent was 200 per month per person, um, which sounds like very low rent. But I mean, at the time we were making almost nothing uh, and we wanted to eliminate even that. We wanted to get that down to zero. And so we noticed that there was a triplex across the street that was for sale. And we realized that if we bought the property, um, moved into, rented out two of the units and then moved into the other unit with our roommates. So we brought our, our roommates with us uh, that we would then be able to live with no out-of-pocket housing expenses. We didn't know at the time that apparently this is referred to as house hacking. Right. <laughs> we had never heard that term. We just had the idea of, hey, we could get our own housing costs down to zero. And so that was what we did. We um, we made a 25 $26,000 down payment, excuse me, not 25. Um, we made a $26,000 down payment. We bought this triplex. And after that, our own out-of-pocket housing costs were nothing. And because they were nothing, that allowed us to save money much more rapidly than we otherwise could have. Um, and so after about a year, we had saved another $20,000 and we used it to buy our second property. And then it kind of snowballed from there. I mean, once you buy the, the first or second house, it becomes addictive. Wow. I read in one of your blogs, guys, if you did not read Paula's blog, you are going to have so much fun. The way that she writes and connects, I really commend you for for the way that you make that so much fun. Thank the, you. So there was one blog, it's saying, um, I have big dreams and small savings, help, that talks about how can you start saving to achieve your dreams. And over there, you said, you recommend save 1% at the time. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about it? Yes, absolutely. So if you, a lot of people have this idea that I, cannot save money. You know, I'm, I'm living at uh, the cheapest that I can. A lot of people have this limiting belief that they're just unable to save. And so my response to that is, all right, regardless of however much you're saving right now, this month, increase it by 1% of your income, which means that if you make $3,000 per month, 1% is $30 a month. So if you are bringing home $3,000 a month, save 30 bucks this month. If you're bringing home $5,000 a month, save 50 bucks this month. If you're bringing home $8,000 a month, save 80 bucks this month, all right? And then next month, double it. And then the following month, do it again, right? So let's say that you bring home $3,000 a month. This month, save $30. Next month, save $60. The month after that, save $90. Increase your savings rate by 1% per month. And if you do so continuously over the course of a year, then one year from now, you will save 12% more than whatever you're saving today. Um, and I think that's a very good way to get started because number one, it feels manageable. Like the idea of saving 12% of your income or 24% or 48% might seem just 
uh, undoable for a lot right. of people. Overwhelming but, sometimes. But the notion of saving $10 for every 1000 that you make, that seems doable, right? So how can you save $10 per thousand that you bring home? It's really powerful, Paula. The, you know, the, a lot of your, you know, some of the things I've, you know, I've read about your background and, you know, the, the philosophy of affording anything, I really, <clears throat> really resonates. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of people. Tell us a little bit about the, you know, that, that philosophy, especially when it comes to, you know, investing in real estate, because, you know, people can sometimes get stopped because they, one, don't, don't feel like they have the money put aside or, you know, real estate isn't just a, you know, get in, get out kind of investment. We all know it, you know, it's, it's something that's with you quite some time and, and you have to put money in when uh, certain things go, you know, when capital expenditures and the roof and all those sort of things happen over the years that take money and energy and, and obviously kind of investment. So your philosophy on affording anything, I'm curious how that you know, how that connects to this real estate investing kind of world. And, you know, just, just curious a little, learn a little more about your philosophy around that. So that philosophy fundamentally is one of opportunity cost. You can afford anything, but not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else. And so when you say, I can't afford it, what you really mean is I haven't made it a priority. Now, obviously, that's within reason. If we're talking about affording a, a spaceship to Mars, all right, that's obviously out of, literally out of this world. Um, but within reason, you can afford it. You just might not be willing to make the hard choices that are necessary to do so. Perfect example, my husband and I lived with roommates until I was 31 and he was 35. A lot of people, a lot of married couples are not willing to live with roommates until the age of 35. But we had, we owned seven rental units and still had roommates because, and, and that's not a, we did X and still Y. It's really a, we did X because of Y. The fact that we had roommates until our mid thirties, early to mid thirties is the reason that we were able to save up enough money to get into real estate investing. And so that was a trade-off that we chose to make. Um, other trade-offs include, I, to this day, I drive an 11 year old car. At the time we started uh, investing in real estate, my, the car I had at the time was 15 years old. Um, we eat, uh, this really, it's not for financial reasons, but we eat predominantly vegetarian food, which has a big savings effect because meat is expensive. So those types of decisions, plus we're, uh, we're both entrepreneurs. And so I don't want to just focus on the saving side of the equation. Developing a side hustle, being an entrepreneur, making more than you could at your nine to five by putting in those extra hours, giving up your Friday nights, giving up your early Saturday mornings. Uh, I shouldn't say give it up, but, you know, exchange it for something that is of a higher value than simply watching a movie. Um, that's, that's actually how you do it. And so a lot of people who say, I can't afford X, uh, tr truly mean I am not willing to prioritize it. Mm, that's deep. Like sometimes um, some people are open to go there and really touch and maybe change or, or look at what holding them back. Do you, do you come across some folks that they're 
they just don't see how they can do it. And therefore, (laughs) constantly, I think a lot of people are uh, ego identified with the idea that they are either too busy or too broke or both. Um, A lot of people have formed a sense of identity around that and they don't want to believe otherwise because, um, because that would rock their fundamental sense of, of who they are and how they see the world. Now, that being said, I don't want to discount the fact that there are people in genuinely hard situations, right? So this does not at all invalidate the fact that uh, there are people who live at the poverty line or below the poverty line. Sure. But if you, so the median U.S. income is fifty approximately $52,000 per year is the median American household income. If you make at least the median American household income or above, there, there are ways that you can do things. You are in the top 50% of income earners. So you've got more choices than half of the population. Wow. Yeah. That's so powerful. One thing that you always mention on your podcast is that financial independence, it's a feeling, not a number. Mm-hmm. And I want to touch base on that because it's also a perception, mm-hmm. how people see their financial independence. Sometimes they have that perception that, okay, that person is financially independent because he or she drives a um, Ferrari or have a, a jet or wear, I don't know, expensive clothing and shoes and all of that image. And, and, and sometimes that doesn't resonate with the person itself. So can you touch base on that feeling of being financially independent? What does that mean to you? Sure. Well, a lot of people define financial independence as the point at which your passive income, typically through investments, earns enough money to cover your basic cost of living. So in other words, if your cost of living is $4,000 per month, then when you reach the point at which your passive income, so perhaps your net rental income after expenses or uh, dividend income from index funds, the point at which your passive income exceed, meets or exceeds your basic living costs, um, That is, in the eyes of many people, the point at which you reach financial independence. Now, the point that I made in this blog post on affordanything.com is that the problem with that definition is that your basic cost of living is going to be dynamic. It's always in flux because throughout the course of your life, there will be times when your expenses are higher or lower, depending on if um, if you have a baby or if that child grows up and then moves out of the house, you know, so you will at some point have child, may have childcare costs. And at other points, your kid's grown up, they're 25 years old, you don't have those costs anymore, right? You'll have some years in which you have medical expenses and some years in which you don't. You'll have, um, you know, there, there are so many, there, there are years in which you might have to care for, financially take care of your parents or your grandparents, because maybe the older generations of your own family are not prepared for retirement and you have to help take care of them. Right. Right. And so there are going to be times in which like there's the problem with identifying with defining financial independence uh, based on your cost of living 
is that you are then tying that definition to a variable that is in constant flux. Exactly. And, and so I think that there, is, there are big mathematical problems with um, defining financial independence in such a way. And so I proposed on, again, on affordanything.com, I proposed this new definition of financial independence in which I said, you know, I believe that financial independence is the point at which your passive income, typically through investments, is enough that you can make decisions from a place of hope and desire rather than from a place of fear or obligation. And in that regard, it is more of a mindset than a number. And the reason that I say that is because the whole purpose of financial independence is that that work becomes optional and that you can have enhanced autonomy to live your life in the way that you want. And there isn't one solid number that is going to define that. Um, you do need passive income. You do need net worth. You can't be so delusional that you have a negative net worth and a bunch of credit card debt and you, you're like, well, I feel, pa- I feel independent. <laughs> you know, like, no, no, you're delusional. <laughs> right. Right. There has to be a, a, a tempering of reality with that. But so long as you are in what most people might consider an objectively solid financial situation, then I believe financial independence is the point at which your mindset changes and you start making choices not based on, I have to pay the electricity bill, but rather based on what are my highest priorities. Wow. That's great. That's that's a like a paradigm shift, you know. You talk about they they you know I forget. I think it's Stephen Covey, right, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talked about paradigm shifts. I mean, that's a that's a real paradigm shift because you know people don't often think of financial independence the way you just described, Paula. And I think what you just described is a much more empowering way than just the 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 nuts and bolts, right, of of the definition. Uh, you know, to circle back a little bit uh, about your path to owning, you know, I think you own, uh, you mentioned seven rental units. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. And you, and you, the numbers are, are really fascinating, especially because we're, you know, everyone in, invests in different areas and buys different types of rental properties, but these are really powerful numbers. So, so I think somewhere along the way, um, I read that you, you own seven properties and your rental properties grossed, you know, I think it was maybe recent year, 125000 and it netted $43,000 in passive income. That's, that's pretty significant for seven rental units. Um, so I'd love to understand a little bit for you, share with us your path, where, where are these properties and just a little bit your philosophy on, on how you, you focused on, because are they in areas that are kind of high kind of, you know, um, what's, the, what's the word? Um, the, the rental income is high, you know, the, the, the uh, cost of properties as well, or no? Well, rental income in a vacuum tells you nothing. Really, the, the question is, what is, what's the cap rate on those, right? What is the income stream relative to the value of the asset? So some of the properties, uh, one of my properties rents for 900 a month. So by, do you consider that high? I don't know. I mean, that's all relative, right? Right, of course. But, but I bought that property for $45,000. So don't just uh, look at rental income, look at rental income in the context of the, the underlying price of the property. Um, yeah, now, let me ask you this too. The, the properties though, were they all bought or used with using your own money? Were you... Um, 
using outside money? How did you, fi- how did you finance your, your portfolio? Just out of curiosity. Oh, we have a whole range of financing, ranging okay. from institutional lending to private lending to okay. two properties that we bought in cash. So we've run the full gamut. Great. That's great. Awesome. And these are, these are multifamily, single families? One of them is a triplex and the other four are single family homes. Okay. Beautiful. Because yeah. I think that sometimes people think that they need to hold a ton of properties to be financially free. And, and, and then they get overwhelmed. They say, I can't, I can't hold or manage 135 units, 900 units, whatever oh, the numbers look like. Terrible. No, so yeah. my philosophy is it's better to own, in my opinion, or at least for me personally, I'm not going to tell other people what to do. But my personal preference is to own fewer units that cash flow better because I would rather... Uh, so across my seven units, I probably own, let's say, somewhere between 14 to 21 toilets, more than 14, less than 21, right? So, um, you know, how many toilets do I want to own? Right? <laughs> That's a good question. Instead of saying, well, how many properties? No, no, think about toilets. How many toilets do you want to own? Exactly. How many stoves do I want to own? How many refrigerators do I want to own? How many... Um, HVAC units do I want to own? When you think of it like that, for me, uh, my conclusion pretty rapidly becomes I want to own the fewest number of units that would produce a cash flow that would bring me to financial independence. And so I've styled my entire investing approach around that. Now, that's my own personal goal. There, I'm, Again, I'm not going to tell other people what goals they should or should not have. And I'm sure that there are people who, who have the ambition of owning 50 doors. Sure. Right. And that's great if that's what you want to do. For me, I want to own as few doors as possible so long as it brings in sufficient passive income to cover my basic living costs. Now, I'm not talking about extravagant living. Of course, I'm not talking about jet skis and Mm -hmm. like uh, fine dining, but I want as few doors as possible that bring in sufficient passive income that if a loved one got a terminal illness diagnosis, I could stop working tomorrow and be by their side and not have to worry about my bills. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The, um, you know, with regards to your, your portfolio, I think, you know, people, you know, we learn, you learn a lot along the way, especially when you start to buy more properties and, you know, what you could have done differently. I'm just curious to learn a little bit about that for you. What would have been some of your greatest lessons, uh, you know, as you grow in your portfolio? Goodness, number one, first and foremost, was um, when you are analyzing a property, analyze it from the point of view that you will be outsourcing everything. So even if you choose to do any of the work yourself, if you choose to do the property management yourself, for example, um, you're, you still run the analysis from the perspective that every single piece of the work is going to be outsourced, the property management, all of the repairs, all the contracting, so that that way the math is not identity agnostic, or the math is not dependent on the identity of an individual. In other words, my belief is that math should be identity agnostic. Otherwise, it's just BS accounting. So totally. run the numbers in a way in which math doesn't depend on the name of the person doing the job. That is, that is good advice, I think, in my opinion, again, because sometimes people say, well, I'm, I'm going to manage this myself. So let me put the, you know, the management a little bit, the percentage of a little bit lower, right? So it's tied up to the person. 
That's right. very cool. In terms of criteria, you mentioned cap rate before. Mm-hmm. What what are your criteria that you can share when you're looking for a property? What are the numbers or qualifications that you look at? Sure. The very first cursory pass that I do, I want to make sure that the property meets what's known as the 1% rule, which means that the gross monthly rent should be at least 1% of the total acquisition price of the property. In other words, for every $100,000 worth of property, it should rent for at least 1000 per month. Now, oftentimes I find properties that do much better. As I just mentioned, I had a property right. that I bought for $45,000. I put 15000 into renovating it. So I'm in it in total for 60000 and it rents for $900 a month. So oftentimes I find properties that do much better, but that first cursory glance of you know, eliminating a property, it has to, at a minimum, rent for at least 1% of purchase price plus initial repairs required to get it rent ready for that first tenant. Mm, Good. So that's the first uh, elimination round. And then after that, if a property meets that, then I will do a more detailed cap rate analysis. And Paul, are you, are you investing locally or do you? Oh, hell no. Uh, (laughs) I was going to say, as you're in Vegas, I'm like, whoa, that must be some (laughs) expensive property out there. Oh, Vegas is very cheap. You can get property here for, yeah, 50 grand, 60 grand. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I had a different impression. Maybe I I watched some different types of shows. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize that. There are also, you know, athletes who live here and celebrities who live here. There are also mansions here for sure. There's casino executives who live in multi, multi multi-million dollar mansions, but that's true of probably any major city. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize it was. So what are the other markets that you're focusing on right now? Oh, so all of the properties that I currently own are in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. And what's great about that is that living out of state forces me to run it like a business. Right. I do not have the option to just drive by and repaint the deck myself, right? Like on a Saturday morning. (laughs) I just don't have the choice of being able to do that. So I have to treat it like a business. I have to develop systems. I have to build a team. I have to develop processes. Um, and I think that's, it's great. It, it holds me accountable. Living out of state really forces you to um, not just cut corners and treat it like a passing hobby. That is so true. I, I want to talk about um, some ladies that are listening to us right now are just starting out and, and they get the feeling of being being it all and a little bit overwhelmed with, uh, with everything. One of your blogs, it's called Why Our Brains Are Working Against Us, where you talk about uh, your friend Monica, that she wanted to open up. Um, if she were to open up her uh, clothing store, how that would look like. But then she thought about raising funds and everything that she needed for the store and everything else. And you mentioned them. Um, She's not lazy. She rolled by lizard brain. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was so cool. Can you, can you tell us what does that mean? Sure, absolutely. So that blog post on Afford Anything was about uh, this section of the brain. And I, I will give the disclaimer before I launch into this, but I am, <laughs> I am in no way a neuroscientist or any <laughs> type of scientist. Um, but there's a portion of the brain known as the amygdala that is responsible for fear. It, it's responsible for our flight or fight, fight or flight response. And, uh, you know, in, 
in uh, hundreds or thousands of years ago when, when our survival depended on running from a grizzly bear, uh, that was extremely helpful to have a section of the, you know, to have this part of the brain that is responsible for our survival by keeping us afraid of new circumstances and new things. I mean, that, that can, in, out in nature, be the difference between getting eaten by a tiger or not. Mm -hmm. But in our modern civilized worlds, uh, the way that that often manifests is that we become afraid of the unknown, even when it won't kill us, even when that unknown is starting a business, buying a rental property, um, starting a side business while you're still at your day job, you know, something that even has that, that safety net. There's still fear. Public speaking. You know, people are afraid of lots of situations, despite the fact that there is objectively very little risk. I mean, let's say that you get up on stage to give a public speech and you bomb it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to feel embarrassed. That's the worst thing that's going to happen. You're not you going to not die. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to become violently ill. You're not going to die of cold exposure. You're not going <laughs> to starve. <laughs> the worst that's going to happen is you're going to feel embarrassed. And, and yet, even that is a paralyzing fear. Totally. Yeah. And so on, uh, on my blog, I wrote about the, a training exercise that Navy SEALs do in order to overcome that basic part of our humanity that is inherently afraid, despite the fact that there's no rational reason to be afraid of many situations. Um, yeah, because they can. They, they, they're just in so decisive situations the navy seals they can't even though they are human beings sometimes uh, i admire them so much because they put them aside and they focus on what really needs to be done in order to many times you know recover people that are in hostage situations so that right. totally makes sense but the question is how how yeah. do they train for that? Exactly. And so on affordanything.com, I describe that. And I talk about how one of their training exercises involves, um, it's a scuba exercise in which they go underwater and their oxygen get, is shut off. <sighs> and then they, in the context of being deep underwater with their oxygen shut off, they have to uh, rescue themselves from that situation. And the way that they do it is they focus on the next smallest actionable step. So rather than think of the broadness of the circumstance that they're in, they think, all right, the next thing that I need to do is untie this knot. Now, in order to untie this knot, the first step is to pull this piece of the, the thread out. Okay, this piece of thread is pulled out. Now this piece of thread needs to be pulled out. Now this piece needs to be pulled this way. You know, so they just, they focus on the next step in front of them. And that level of focus is an exercise, a method for overcoming fear. Because if you focus on the, the, the bigness of the situation that you're in, that can be overwhelming. If you focus on the single next step, all right, I want to invest in real estate. My next step is to make one phone call to one other investor and invite that one person out for coffee on Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. at this particular cafe. Yeah, 
That's a great point, Paul. It's like, what's in front of me to do, right? Like what is literally in front of me to even do your example that you just shared? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could recall a number of times in our, in our business, in our investing life, you know, a couple, you know, one particular time, it was like a huge goal we had to pay off a certain debt. And it was, it felt really big to us. And, and it, you know, would feel big to probably most people, but it felt really big. And, and I can remember myself in some days and I'm, I just stopped and I just was like, ah, I, I, don't, I don't see how we're going to do that. And I remember like talking it through with friends and probably Andressa and, you know, my husband <laughs> and, and, and just saying what is literally in front of me to do? What is that one thing I can do to move me towards my goal? And, and it moves you. And, and then you get, and then you, you know, you, you get past it and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that stops a lot of us and we have to really remember what is literally right in front of you to do. Not 10, 10 steps ahead, but in front, you know, so that's a really excellent point. Um, so what's next for you? I'm, I'm, you know, in terms of, I mean, you have a lot of, you have a, you know, really popular blog and, and, and a really amazing presence and on, online and growing a, a, you know, portfolio and curious what, what's next for you as you, uh, as you, as you grow and develop? Well, the big thing that I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm launching a course on rental property investing and it's, it's actually, it's still in beta and uh, I'm going through it right now with a group of, of beta students. So I've, this thing has been under construction for the last two years and I'm finally done creating the material. And so the student, the beta students and I are now going through in, in sequential order and we're going through all of it and we're iterating it. And so that is the number one, number two, and number three thing that I'm doing. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, but good. it's, great. it's good basically the, like, I just took everything that I've learned and I brain dumped it out. And, and that is, that was a huge project, a much bigger undertaking than I had ever anticipated. Um, so, I mean, it took two years to, to, to really get all of that out and organize it. But, Good for uh, you. Good yeah, for yeah. you. Yeah. P and people need to be taking, I, I say this a lot and so does on Jessup, you know, probably agree with me, but people need to be taking courses for people living it and, and real yes. people that are, didn't buy property 20 years ago. And, and so I think that's awesome. And you probably have so much, not only real estate investing experience to share, obviously, but you're your, um, you know, just the, the financial wherewithal that you share and all the great insight you have. So that's, that's really awesome. So good for you. Please, we'll, uh, we'll include that in the show notes uh, to the ladies listening if they want to learn more about that and what have you. So. Oh, thank you. Thank and by, that's a good, good lead in. Where could, uh, where could uh, the, the ladies listening to this, uh, where can they find you and learn more about what you're up to uh, in, you know, all the various uh, aspects? Well, uh, if you're specifically interested in real estate investing, then head to affordanything.com slash VIP list. And if you leave your email address there, then I'll send, I'll send you special updates specifically about real estate investing. So um, yeah, so that's the, the number one place to find me is affordanything.com slash VIP list and leave your email address. Beautiful. And I will put all the links, um, all the links for the, the blogs that I, we mentioned on this. Highly recommend you guys to read them, them all. Uh, Paula, right now you're going to go to our fabulous three questions. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> okay. The first one is, what's the most transformational book you have ever read? Oh, geez. Just one. Just one. <laughs> oh. oh, that is tough. No. <clears throat> Seven, maybe um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, which you mentioned earlier. That's, uh, that, that is probably 
the most transformational and it and specifically it's because of an idea that he put in there about your circle of influence um, oh. that's perhaps one of the most important notions that i've ever learned awesome the second one is what's the most powerful routine you do to create a financially free and balanced life Ooh, um this this is i i guarantee nobody has ever said this on your show before stay hydrated drink a lot of water I'm You're a, right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm completely serious because so many, um, so much of the time, it isn't that we don't have time, it's that we don't have energy. You're so tired at the end of the day that rather than work on your side hustle, rather than, you know, reach out to other, learn more about investing, you just want to collapse on the couch and watch Netflix, right? And so I'll, I'll Oftentimes, I think people look to time management when really what they need is energy management. And so there, there are a number of ways that you can manage or enhance or improve your energy levels. Getting adequate sleep, eating a, a, a plant-based diet, um, exercising regularly. But the one that gets very overlooked, I think, is being hydrated. Uh, it makes a world of difference in your energy levels. I totally agree with you. And sometimes I feel that I'm hungry, but I'm not I'm actually thirsty. Mm-hmm. And I look back. So I, I bought this bottle that I, I'm all about go orient, uh, being go-oriented and everything else. So I bought this bottle that tells me how much water do I need to drink by <laughs> what time. So I'm always like looking and say, oh my gosh, I need to drink it by 11 o'clock. I need to drink this much. It's actually working very well. So ah, nice. yeah. So cool. The third and last question is, which woman, famous or not, has inspired you the most? Oh, well, I mean, the first person that came to mind is my mom. Um, um, Because she's kind, you know, because she she takes care of people. And uh, you see that in small ways. She's great with plants. She's great with animals. She's... Yeah, she's she's nurturing and giving and and very very, um, yeah, just very kind and wow. I think that's that's the foundation of everything. Absolutely, and and I I can relate to to all of that. I think kindness sometimes it gets overlooked, and I'm glad you pointed that out because it, it's just I want to highlight that more than any anything else. The kindness it doesn't cost you anything. And it's just available in abundance. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I tell my son when he went to, he went, this year was his first year of preschool. And I heard that from a mom about a year ago. And she goes, you know, I don't tell my son or daughter to have a good day. I tell them to be kind. Mm. Right? And I heard that and I'm like, that's really a great idea. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think of anything myself. I just hear good ideas. And that's what I did. Like I, most of the, most days, even today, my, my son went to daycare and I said, be kind, Zachary, because I need to remind him <laughs> to do that. <laughs> so I love that, Paula. That's your, um, your wealth of, 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 of knowledge, experience, and just, uh, you know, love what you're up to and, and uh, good luck with the course. If we can support you in any way, please let us know. We'll share the link on our Invest Her community, whatever we could do. But um, you, you're up to some amazing things and we really, really appreciate yes. your time. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. This has been so much fun. Awesome, Paula. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. 
I can't, I can't, we can't continue doing <laughs> a million more hours. And I hope everybody enjoy as much as we did. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to receive updates on our next interviews, go to our website, therealestateinvestor.com. There, you can subscribe to our show, become part of our investor community, and get updates on upcoming episodes. If you like our show, please share it with other women who would benefit. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, we encourage you to take one action as a result of today's show and put it into motion so you can live both a financially free and balanced life. Thanks for spending time with us. Ciao.